Well, everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a view of seeing, uh, a way of seeing the world themselves and others. And uh, anybody that you talk to, if you talk to them long enough, you'll find that they have a worldview. And it usually boils down to something like this. Something's wrong, and how do we fix it? Um, and if you talk to people long enough, you'll, they'll tell you, I know what's wrong with the world, and I know how to fix it. And um, in fact, most commercials that we see on TV or ads that we see on the internet, most of them tell us something like that. There's something wrong with the world, and I can fix it if you just buy this thing. I saw a commercial recently, and it said this. It said, good is good, but lately things have been getting super not good, as it showed a picture of a TV with the news on it. And it said, which is bad? Because things should be good. If you prefer bad over good, we're probably not the product for you. Do you know what that product was that, that takes the bad and makes it good? Cliff bars. <laughs> a cliff bar will take the bad in the world and make it good. Um, but you know, this, this commercial actually gets it. The same thing Paul is saying in this text. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. The world is broken, and yet God has fixed it. And Paul looks at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and he says this is the most cataclysmic event in the history of the world. And once you have seen Jesus, once your eyes have been opened to Jesus, you can't unsee him. Once you've experienced the gospel of Jesus, nothing else will ever be the same because the gospel changes the way you see everything, the way you see the world, the way you see yourself, and the way you see other people. And once you, once you are changed by the gospel, once you see Jesus, once you see the gospel, Paul actually says you become an ambassador for him. You become a commercial that goes out and gets other people, makes an appeal to other people to be reconciled to God. And you join in what he calls in this passage the ministry of reconciliation. And to do that, he shows us three things. He shows us that the curse is worse than you think, the cross is better than you think, and the call is easier than you think. That's where we're going today. But there is a key that you have to understand to understand those three points. And he tells us in verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So for these three things to be true, we have to understand this, that things are not always as they seem. There is a different way of looking at things. And once you see Jesus, he changes you and gives you that new way of seeing things. So the curse is worse than you think. Um, those, those first few verses that, that Joyce read tell us that... Um, Tell us something about the world. See, other people at that time would have looked at the world and they would have said, you know what, the world, they would have agreed, the world is broken. But you know, the, the soul is what is pure. And so if we could just get out of these bodies, just this created body, if we could take it off like a garment, then the soul could go naked and free 
and live in purity. And Paul says, no, actually, you're right, something is wrong, but it's worse than you think. In fact, the, the creation was created good, and yet it's under a curse. The world is broken, and all the people in it were under the curse. And when, when the, the new world comes, it's not going to be a shedding of this world. It's actually going to be a world that's more real, more heavy, weightier, more glorious than this world. We're not going to escape this world. We're going to be made new, and there's going to be a new creation. And in verse 4, he tells us, For while we are still in this tent, which is his metaphor for the body and this world and this creation, he says, We groan, being burdened, that we would be further clothed. He says, We groan. And another place in Romans 8, he says, All of creation is groaning for redemption. In other words, he's saying that, that the world is cursed and longing to be set free, longing to be what it was made to be, longing to be made something greater than it is now, not something less. If you're familiar with the, the comedian Brian Regan, you probably know this skit where he talks about going to the ER. And in the ER waiting room, what do you hear? You hear groaning. And if you're in the ER and you hear other people groaning, there's a fear that if I'm not groaning loud enough, I'm not going to get any attention. So you hear someone groaning, and you're like, oh, i gotta go, I got to groan a little bit louder so that the doctors will actually come see me. And you hear all these people competing with their groans. Well, Paul is saying, actually, the whole world is groaning. And if, and if you see the world not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, then you would be groaning too. The trees and the rocks and the oceans and, and the nations and schools and, and political structures, everything in this world is groaning to be made new, groaning to be something greater than it is, but it's cursed. The problem is, is actually worse than we think. It's more pervasive than we think. The entire world is under the curse. It is glorious and it is a beautiful world created by God, and it still bears a lot of his glory. But this world is cursed. And what that means is that the problem is, is actually much worse than we think. See, sometimes I think we're tempted to believe that, you know, if I had just a little bit more money, then I think I'd be okay. If I had a few more friends, if I had a little more status, if I had a romantic relationship, if I had life as I have it now with just something a little bit, just tweak it just a little bit, then I'd be okay. Or maybe we look at the world and we say, you know what, the problem is there's just not enough education. If we just had a little more education, we'd be okay. If we just had a little more justice, we'd be okay. If we just had a little more of the right leaders elected into office, then we'd be okay. If, if people had just a little bit more money, they would be okay. And, you know, sometimes I, I look at my own life and I think, um, is, it, is it really that bad? I mean, this, we live in Santa Barbara. There's a lot worse places to live. And, you know, we can come to Santa Barbara and, and live a pretty comfortable life and, and be able to forget most of the time that this world is cursed, that creation is a even the beauty of this creation in Santa Barbara 
is groaning for redemption, groaning to be made new. And you know, sometimes when I, when I look at my friends who are unbelievers, it's easy for me to look and say, you know what, their, life, their lives are not that bad. They're not monsters of iniquity. Some of them are better people, than, they're actually better than me. Is Jesus really going to make a difference in their lives? Is there really a reason for them? Should I really be an ambassador for Christ? Because their life seems pretty good, according to the flesh. But things are not always what they seem. See, Paul says if, if we've been changed by the gospel, then we have to look at all of creation, even our friends and our coworkers, our family, and say, we are all utterly broken and cursed and in need of redemption, in need of being made new. And on the outside, you may look, it may not look like you're broken. It may look like you've got it together and you're actually living a, a life full of joy and peace and happiness. But things are not always what they seem. Um, in his book, uh, Love in the Ruins, the author Walker Percy um, Love in the Ruins is this crazy book. It's a, it's a dystopian, apocalyptic novel about the end of the world, which is what apocalyptic novels are usually about. Um, but uh, the lead character is a doctor named Thomas Moore who has, has actually dedicated his life to, to breaking the curse, to fixing humanity. And he's even invented this contraption that can can heal what's broken, a machine that heals humanity. And, and it's a satire. It's really funny. So, like, it's like the left-wing politicians and the right-wing politicians, and he's got a cure for each of them um, that's different. And, and, but he's believed he's got this contraption that will that heal people. And at one point in the novel, he says, in his, in his attempt to get to this place, to find this healing, he says, for the world is broken, sundered, busted down the middle, self-ripped from self, and man pasted back together as mythical monster, half angel, half beast, but no man. Someday a man will walk into my office as a ghost or beast or ghost beast and walk out as a man, which is to say sovereign wonder, lordly exile, worker and waiter and watcher. See, we too are not what we're supposed to be. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Marriage is broken, it's cursed, it's ripped apart, put back together in a way that's not the way it's supposed to be. Families are broken and put back together in ways they're not supposed to be. Careers, hobbies, everything in this life, everything in this life, even the, even the best things in this life, in this world, still are fundamentally broken. And that means people too. Fundamentally, we live alienated from God, broken down the middle by the curse, put back together, pasted back together with our best attempts at fixing the problem, and yet still still not what we were made to be, still in need of redemption because we're in need of being reunited to the one who made us and the one who promises to remake us. And in Walker Percy's novel, he had a machine to do that. 
But for Paul, he says the cross is the instrument of reconciliation. The cross is the thing that heals us and puts us back together, which is to say it puts us back into relationship with God. It reconciles us to God, to the way we're meant to be. And when we see that, we see that the cross is actually better than you think. just want to read verses 17 through 21 again. He says, after saying that we regard no one according to the flesh, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what our hearts are longing for. That's what we're longing for. That's what makes this world right again. It's being made right with God, reconciled to God. See, sometimes we hear this passage, and you may think reconciliation, well, the way I normally use this is I think of racial reconciliation, where, um, where racial groups acknowledge the pain that has, has happened and the harm that has been done, and they're able to come together after a period of enmity and violence and have peace. And if you're wondering if this passage is talking about reconciliation or if the Bible has anything to say about reconciliation, then the answer is absolutely yes. Pentecost is about reconciliation because what Pentecost is showing is that the curse broke us apart. The fall broke us apart. And since Cain and Abel, we have been at enmity with one another. And throughout the pages of the New Testament, you see that this gospel goes out to the nations, and it takes people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, nations that were at war with one another, languages that, that didn't like one another, where harm and violence and oppression had been done, and, and the cross removes the enmity and the hostility that's between them. And Christians believing in Jesus find new family in Christ. And so they see people from other tribes and nations and tongues, and they say, now you're my brother. You're my sister. We're not at enmity with one another anymore. In fact, of all the times that brother and sister are used in the New Testament, I think it's 350 times. I don't know. I forget the numbers. A lot of times. A lot of times. The, the most by far... The most by far, it's talking about people who are not blood-related. In other words, he's saying that, that in Christ, at the foot of the cross, there's a new fraternity. There's a brotherhood of new humanity. There's a new family. And that at the cross, and this is what Pentecost shows us, there's a new creation, and that new creation is not one nation. It's every nation under the earth, those who believe in Jesus and are united to him by faith, become a part of this new humanity where 
where faith in Jesus actually transcends their ties to nation and family and blood. But that's not the most important thing that Paul is talking about in this passage. He's actually talking about the fact that we were, through the fall, we were born in, in, at war with God himself. That we have enmity and violence toward God. We are alienated from him. And to put it strongly, we hate him. We hate God. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us faith to believe in Jesus, we actually are reconciled and reunited. And we go from being enemies of God to being children of God. And in other places, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit actually causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. To the person that we used to shake our fist at, we now embrace and we welcome his embrace. And when it talks about being reconciled, that's, that's what reconciliation means. It's like when a shoulder has been dislocated and it's being put back in the way it's supposed to be. It's being put back in the right location. There is a positional element to reconciliation here. And what Paul is saying is that we were, we were one time we were turned away from God. Notice it doesn't say that God was turned away from humanity. The pages of the Bible tell us that God has been at work with his creation from the beginning, that he did not abandon humanity at, at the fall, that he has been at work redeeming all throughout history. But what Paul is saying is that through faith in Jesus, we actually are reconciled to God. And now we call him Father. And that means not only that um, we look around at, these, at, at other languages, Russian, Arabic, Ethiopian, Farsi, Ugaritic, Hebrew, Cantonese, Bhutanese, Quechua, all professing the name of Jesus. And we say, I now have a new family in Christ. It means that we look at God and we say, I have a new father in Christ. I have a new father. I, and this is actually the way I'm meant to be. And Paul says it this way. He says it's so drastic that the old is gone and the new has come. And he says to those who believe in Jesus, and he says to us, you are a new creation. That is what we are. But it doesn't look that way, does it? When you look around, um, when you look inside, it doesn't feel new all the time, does it? But remember, Paul says we regard no one according to the flesh because the Spirit says you are new. You are a new creation. You are the first fruits of the redemption that God is bringing to this world. Someday he will bring new heavens and new earth, but right now he has new people, new creations, new men, new women, new children who are made new, not according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. I remember once um, when I was a pastor in Chicago, this young man in his late 20s came to church on a Thanksgiving week, and um, during the sermon, he was visibly moved. Um, just so you know, most of you don't look visibly moved now. We can tell when that's happening. Um, most of the time, if you don't know, when you're, when you're watching a sermon, you just have a dead look on your face. Um, and so do I. 
But this man was visibly moved. And so I talked to him after the service, and he says, something happened to me. And we began to meet in the weeks that followed. His name was Mike. And he had, he had never really read the Bible. He'd never read the New Testament. He had very little familiarity with the story. And this is what he told me. He says, I feel like there's a new Mike. There was an old Mike, and it's gone. And now there's a new Mike. And this new Mike, like, wants different things. And this new Mike feels different. This new Mike actually loves God and can't believe And he's crying as he's saying this. I can't believe that God would love me. After all these years of me just ignoring him, God would still be there when I turned around. He would still be there waiting for me. And I said, Mike, you realize you're quoting the Apostle Paul. He's like, who? When the Spirit is in you, he began to even speak the words of the New Testament that you had never read before. Because the Spirit was telling him, Mike, you're new. There's a new you. There's something different here. And that's, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about Pentecost, and, and we see these tongues of fire, and we see the, the wind of God. Um, there's all these echoes of Genesis in Pentecost. If you were to go back and read, you, would, you know, the history of the, the Holy Spirit, you'd have to go back to page 1, Because in creation, the Holy Spirit, in Hebrew it's called the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, was hovering over the waters. And at Pentecost, the Spirit in in tongues of fire was hovering over new people, hovering over new creation. Jesus breathes on his disciples and promises the Holy Spirit just as God breathed into the nostrils of Adam at creation and brought him to life as a living being. And what Paul is saying here is when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you too are a new creation. There's a new Genesis. There's a new you. Something new is happening. And it's something that is totally, totally new since the first creation. The cross is better than you think. It's better than you think. Our sins are forgiven. We are reconciled to God, and we're given the Holy Spirit. As Paul calls it here, a guarantee. In other places, he said, it's a deposit. It's a promise that he will make all things new. And one day, we will walk not by faith, but by sight. And what will we see except for Everyone as they are, as they're supposed to be, new creations, we'll see God face to face. And when you, when you start to do that now, you start to see your wife as a new creation. You start to see your son, your, the person beside you in church. You start to see yourself as a new creation. When you start to understand how good the gospel is, that we are loved in Christ and reconciled and promised to be made new with a new heaven and a new earth, then you start to share it with other people and you become, as Paul says, ministers of reconciliation. This is part of the good news. We get this purpose of being ministers of reconciliation in this world, ambassadors for Christ, imploring others 
to believe in him, to put their faith in him, convincing others, persuading others that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the most cataclysmic event in human history. And he is the answer to what's wrong. We broke it. He fixed it. And the good news is that we get to tell everybody that. Now, you might be thinking, well, that too doesn't always feel like good news. In fact, some of you may be like giving me invisible high fives right now because you love evangelism and you have the gift of evangelism. And others hear the word evangelism and cringe because you've always felt ashamed that you haven't done enough. And here's what um, my friend Ricky Jones, he's a pastor in Oklahoma, I love the way he puts it. He says, we've, got to really, we've really got to give the devil his due on this one. Because somehow the devil has gotten us to feel, to, he's, he's used shame to try to get us to go out and tell people about the message of Christ where there is no shame. And so many times we are shamed into sharing the gospel. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't say, and if you really believe this, and if you were really a good Christian, you'd go out and you would just convert everyone that you see. You know, I used to, I knew a guy growing up in my small rural town in South Carolina. Um, he carried around a list in his back pocket of all the people that he had converted And, you know, the message was if you really love Jesus, you'd have a list in your back pocket. But, you know, Paul actually um, doesn't do that. He says all of this is from God. The work is the work of the Holy Spirit. And actually, if we read one verse further into chapter 6, he would even say that we are co-workers working together with him in this appeal in the gospel, and sharing the gospel. And so I think this call to share the gospel is actually easier than we think. It's easier than we think. And the reason why is because we aren't motivated by shame to go out and do it. We're actually motivated by beauty and vision. Paul is saying that that once you have seen the gospel, you can't unsee it. And you regard no one according to the flesh, meaning you see everyone um, as someone who could become a Christian. You see everyone as someone who might put their faith in God. You may look at the person who you hate the most in this life and say, there's no way. And Paul says, we don't look according to the flesh. We live and look according to the Spirit. And the Spirit is at work. And he's the one who does the work. You know, the, um, the same pastor that I just uh, mentioned, he said, he was talking to another pastor and he said, hey, what's the best sermon illustration you've ever given? And he said, I can't tell you the best, but I'll tell you the most memorable. Um, or the one that people like the most. He said, years ago I was preaching a sermon and I used this illustration. I said, there's a a $13 bottle of wine that tastes like a $50 bottle of wine. And he says, not a month goes by that I don't get a text, 
or an email or a call or some message on Facebook saying, hey, what was that wine that um, tasted like it was $50, but it was only $13? See, for, for his people, that was good news. And you might be thinking, so are you really not going to tell us the name of that wine? <laughs> and, I, and I can't because I don't know, but you better believe I'm going to ask him. <laughs> um, see, we, we actually share things that we love. We share things that we're in love with. We share things that we find beautiful. And that's not a way of shaming us into sharing the gospel, but it's just saying, do we really believe the gospel is beautiful? Or do we need to hear it again? Paul is saying, I implore you, be reconciled to God on behalf of Christ. The curse is worse than you think. The cross is better than you think. It's better than a cheap bottle of wine. And if you look at this world according to the Spirit, you'll see that this is the thing that we're all longing for. This is the thing that we all want, whether we acknowledge it or not. It's a thing that we all need. We need to be reconciled to God, our maker. We need to be made new. Your neighbor needs to be made new. Your coworker, your family member needs to be made new. And we get to tell them the way. We get to point them to the way and say, there is a way to be made new. And the call to do that is, is easier than you think because... One, it's, it's actually the Holy Spirit's work. He's the one that's doing all the work. He's the one that's breathing new life and faith into people's hearts. Um, but it's also easier than you think because how do we do this? How do we share the gospel? They're just words. We just use words. Just breath and tongues to speak the good news. See, if I were going to institute a new um, kingdom, I think I would spread it with the sword. I'm going to force them to get what's good for them. But the cross, the message of the cross doesn't come through the sword. It comes through the word. And that's how the gospel spread. Just words, just puffs of air and vocal cords from ordinary human beings if you look at the history of how the church spread, it's, it's one of, the, um, it, it's one of the like, things that historians always try to understand. How did a group of fishermen and tax collectors um, in first century Palestine, how did they pull this off if you just looked at it according to the flesh? And historians say, we don't know. We don't know how they did this. But when you look at it according to the Spirit, you say it was the Spirit at work, and they did it through sharing their words, accompanied by acts of love. I remember sitting in seminary, um, probably my second year, where I'd gotten to know most of my classmates, and I looked around, and, and I had this distinct moment where I, was, I looked at my classmates, and I looked at myself, and I said, this is God's plan? These people? including me, this is God's plan to fix the world, to fix what's broken by the curse. We are the ones that are supposed to take this out. And I look at people and, I, and I'm like, I, I know they're 
coffee breath and their beer gut and their addictions and their anxieties. And I know my own, and I think, we take the gospel. We are God's plan for the renewal of all things. And I wonder if that's what they thought 2,000 years ago when they were literally spreading the gospel to the nations. Um, A historian named Michael Green wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. And I love the way he describes it. He says, how did the church grow? He said it grew through preaching. But this was most often not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances. In homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls, they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. Gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who were not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread. That's how the gospel spreads. That's how new creation happens. It's through ordinary people like us gossiping the gospel, taking it wherever we go. This extraordinary work is done with ordinary words and ordinary people. And I want to give us a few tips on how to do it. Uh, Because when we do that, when we share the gospel, we are living out Pentecost. And so the first is listen to the gospel. Remind one another, remind us, remind yourself of how good it is. The more we hear the gospel, the more we want to share it with other people. Um, So listen to the gospel. And you know what? Maybe even speak the gospel. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know that I could actually articulate the gospel in a short and simple way. Maybe in your community groups, practice just giving the gospel in one or two sentences to one another. Hearing it spoken, knowing that there is power in the Spirit at work in these words. The second is um, listen to thy neighbor. Genuine curiosity See, if you go, the non-Christians in the room will tell you, if you come up to them um, and, you're tr- and, and you see them as a project, they can smell it from a mile away. Um, that's, that's not a compelling vision for people. What's a compelling vision is being loved, being listened to, genuine curiosity. And so as you um, get to know people in your life, just listen to them, which means you have to ask questions. Maybe you ask them, what's your take on work? What's your take on family? What's your take on what's wrong with the world? Maybe you ask them about their loves. What do you love? What do you like to do when you're not at work? What do you like to, what do you spend your time on? What kind of books do you like to read? Do you like to spend time with your family? Are you close to them? You will find what people love, and as you hear what people love, you'll be able to speak into their hearts as well. And likewise, share what you love. I had a a professor in seminary who wrote a book about evangelism, and he says, just do what you love to do with other people. Jesus, do you know his method? He came eating and drinking. And as he did, he shared the gospel, shared the good news. So do what you love. If it's tennis, go play tennis and do it with other people. And listen to them as you do it. And, and as you do that, also listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will tell you when to speak and give you words to speak. 
So ask the Holy Spirit, who do you want me to pray for? Who do you want me to listen to? Who do you want me to befriend? Holy Spirit, are you asking me to linger after this soccer practice where I really want to get home, but there's other people here that I may need to meet and talk to and befriend? Listen to the Holy Spirit and know that as you do, the Holy Spirit goes with you. He speaks with your words. This is how the kingdom is built. He is living in you, and when you speak the gospel, you speak the words of the Spirit. And that Spirit goes into other people and changes them and gives them faith. And then they speak the gospel, and it changes someone else. And then they speak the gospel. This is the way the church has spread. And, you know, Jesus said it this way, it's the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And do you remember what comes to roost in the tree? It's the nations. It's the ends of the earth. It's, it's, it's all people from every language, tribe, and tongue. You know, one of the things I love about having children is I get to watch kids' movies. Um, some are terrible, and some are really good. And you may disagree with me on this one, but I love Moana. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it, but still watch it. Moana is the story of this girl on an island, and all she knows is her island, but there is, the world is cursed. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Something's wrong, and it's because this fire monster, Teka, this darkness, is going out through all the sea, literally bringing destruction to all the islands, and the curse has arrived at her island. And she received this call to go out and defeat the monster, the fire monster, Teka, and restore the heart of Tefiti. Tefiti is the, kind of the force of creation in, in her world, in this movie. And her call is to defeat Teka and restore the heart of Tefiti. And in the most climactic scene of the entire movie, she has sailed, voyaged across the sea and she's come to, to defeat Teka. She's come to this fire monster. And she has this stone that is called the Heart of Tefiti. And she looks at the monster and she realizes, I've got to restore the monster's heart with this stone, the fire monster that's burning in front of me. And she says to the ocean to, to let her pass and the sea splits. Um... Yes, Disney movies rip off the Bible. Um, and she walks through on dry land. And she goes to this monster, and she restores the heart of the monster. And as she's doing it, she's singing this song. She says, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. You know who you are, who you really are. Friends, that's the story of Jesus who has crossed the horizon to find you, to restore your heart, to make you who you're meant to be, to give you a new name, to restore all of creation. And our task, the task before us is to be heart restorers, reconcilers, restoring the hearts of our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family to the God who created them, not because we're good and we have the answer, but because Christ has done it for us, because he has done it for us, and it's so good and so beautiful, and it answers all the longings of our heart 
puts back the world the way it's supposed to be in such a way that it can only be called new creation, new heavens, and new earth. And that's our task, to do that even as we groan for the world to be made new. Because a new world is coming. As we speak, God is here and God is at work through his spirit. Today, every bit as present and active as he was at Pentecost. He's at work in Santa Barbara, in Saigon, in Beijing, in Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, Kyoto, Berlin, the Andes Mountains, and the Rocky Mountains, and the Himalayas, and even the Los Padres Mountains. The Holy Spirit is at work to restore the hearts of men and women and to make this world new. He is with us and he is at work. May we join him. Amen.